0: Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, those of you that follow my podcast uh, know that, well, I hope you know that I like to dive into conversations, people, topics that maybe we're not paying attention to, maybe we should be paying attention to. This is absolutely one that I will get on a soapbox and say we need to be paying attention to. Um, When I saw this pitch come in, I immediately said, this is a conversation that I'd like to have. I think it goes far beyond education. It's cultural based uh, and i think there's a responsibility to know what's going on and information is power so i'm really excited to be speaking with maureen keller and rebecca klein maureen is editorial partner at ed post she's a veteran education reporter a former high school english teacher and also the proud mom of an elementary student in chicago public schools her work has been published across the education world, from EdWeek to the Center for American Progress. Between 98 and 06, she was an associate editor at Catalyst Chicago, the go-to magazine covering Chicago's public schools. Rebecca is a Queens-based freelance journalist who primarily covers education, labor, and politics. She most recently worked as a senior reporter for HuffPost. Before HuffPost, she worked at the New York public radio station, WNYC. Her work has been recognized by organizations like the Online News Association and the Education Writers Association, and she frequently appears on panels, radio programs, podcasts, and more to discuss her reporting. Guys, so nice to spend some time with you. Um, you know, I do. I get lots of pitches uh, during a given day, and very few just sort of jump out at me. But when I see something that says, not Jim Crow, but Jane Crow, <laughs> uh, it just pulled me in immediately. Uh, can we start there? Can we talk about, I want to not only educate myself, but I want to sort of get a baseline. I know you've talked to Randy Weingarten. I interviewed her years ago. Very strong, prominent voice in education. Um, talk a little bit about the impetus for, in essence, why we're, you. the three of us are here today talking um, and why now is so important.
1: Sure. Uh, Ed Post took on this project because we want people to understand first and foremost, that the ideology behind Jim Crow never died, it's still with us, Um, and that women have been part of that as much as men. And that's why we use the phrase Jane Crow. And we recommend to everyone who wants to really go deep in the history of this to check out a book by a historian from North Carolina named Elizabeth McRae called Mothers of Massive Resistance, and it traces the history of women's participation in racial exclusion and segregation from the Jim Crow era, from the early part of the 20th century, all the way up into the 1970s, with the debates over busing in Boston. Um, So it is not confined to the South, it is not confined to men, and it is not something that is a part of history. It is still with us.
0: And and that's something that uh, Maureen, thank you for that sort of setting the stage. But Rebecca, I, I don't want to sound ignorant here, but I guess I'm going to. I'll do that and I'll represent those that might feel like, wait a minute, this feels new or it feels different from a perspective. Is that when you said it's in essence, the conversation is much bigger than what we've thought, and women have played a significant role in what we're talking about. And I don't know if that's surprised. I don't know why that's surprising. Can you help me understand why that is surprising to me? Is it the way in which we think about media, the way in which we portray some of these really uh, challenging conversations and topics?
2: I don't think it's because the way that we think about media or the way that we think about some of these challenging topics. I think it's about the way that we think about power and who has the ability to wield it. So obviously both historically and in present day, men tend to be in more positions of power and be more visible in positions of power. But oftentimes that obscures the role that women play, both when it comes to positive actions, as well as when it comes to potentially negative actions as well.
0: Uh, Well said. And look, the men you're talking about look like me. Uh, I get it. Um uh, uh and and the challenges to that that we have across our society uh what responsibility let's talk about the role responsibility plays because if we if the narrative is, it's guys like me that have been laying down the legislation that have sort of putting up the fence posts, the parameters, but now we're finding that women are playing have played a significant role. maybe it just hasn't been publicized or documented and chronicled the way in which you, the two of you have. What sense of responsibility do women have in educating themselves to have a different position? Because you talk about it uh, publicly about Moms for Liberty. We talked off air. I live in Tennessee. Moms for Liberty is very prominent here. Um, And oftentimes, and I've been to school board meetings, and I've seen Moms for Liberty speak, and I've seen other women in the audience that just sort of sit there quietly while it's like there's no middle ground. So I'm really curious as to the sense of responsibility or the conversations that the two of you've had with women outside of this project when they learn of it, when they think about the way in which they could and or should participate.
1: Right. I can speak to that a little bit. First of all, we invited contributors who have on-the-ground experience with this, and we were fortunate to speak with a white woman who lives in Oakland, California, author Courtney Martin, who... uh, Wrote a commissioned piece for us, talking about the subtle ways that people who are like me, white progressive moms, who think you know that we're open and accepting, but aren't always aware of where we draw the lines. Um, our our contributor Courtney's experience in Oakland was that she sent her children to a local public school that was predominantly black and lower achieving, as measured as measured by standardized test scores. And in the cocktail parties and afternoon events among her friends, when she said, my kids go to Emerson School in Oakland, people would say, where's that? Or is that safe? My daughter has attended a predominantly Mexican-American school in Chicago, and we get the same responses from our Northside friends. Oh, my daughter goes to Chavez. Chavez, where is that? In our case, Chavez happens to be one of the most high-achieving neighborhood schools in Chicago, but people don't know about it because it's in the wrong neighborhood on the wrong side of town.
0: So then what conversations can come from that not or that sort of newfound awareness? You know, a lot of times I don't share these kinds of things in a podcast, but like I've advocated here, we had Moms for Liberty that was going after libraries and schools. And when that happened, I had countless librarians calling me confidentially late at night saying, what do we do? We don't know how to get our voice out there, right? And these sorts of things, and so there feels like there's a knowledge gap and also a what to do next gap in understanding someone's place in this discussion, the implications of their sort of apathy and or participation, and then what to do because it feels like there's literally no middle ground. And I don't know if this is more societal in perspective, but it feels like you're either all in in public, or you're behind sort of the closed door because you're afraid to sort of step out and have a voice. And that feels like a concern. And look, selfishly, I'd like for more people to know what your project's about and follow what you're doing, because hopefully that yields conversations at coffee shops, at soccer practice, at you know play practice, these sorts of things. But help me understand, Rebecca, that piece of it. How do we sort of pull people into the conversation where they don't, They can still be part of it and not feel like they have to be sort of this, you know, saber rattling advocate. And that's what I think people are concerned with. Or they don't have the wherewithal to do that in a positive way without looking like the very people they're trying to challenge.
2: You know, I recognize that this is an intensely difficult issue, especially when it comes to one's kids psychologically. And I think there are a lot of biological reasons for this. It is always a mother or a parent's instinct to... Do whatever they think will uh, get their kid in the best position and I think oftentimes it is an instinct to think of this as a zero-sum game when oftentimes it's not a zero-sum game. I think part of the problem is we tend to think about many of these issues as ones that have already been solved or ones that are unsolvable and that's not necessarily the case. When you think about things like school segregation, when you think about Unequal distribution of resources among schools. Uh, You know, it's been called the problem that we all live with. And I think so much of what needs to happen is just to have conversations about the fact that this is still a problem and that it's not an intractable problem and really educate oneself on the history of some of these issues as a means to looking forward.
0: What role do the schools play and primarily um, school boards? Because we're seeing so many battles. I mean, in Williamson County, where I reside, you know, just, I don't know, 18 months ago, two years ago, don't quote me sort of on the exact date, but, you know, we were sort of splattered all over CNN and every national network with school board fights and people threatening people in the parking lots. And I think there are residual effects for those districts that have experienced that in getting people to participate. Um, talk a little bit about the role that schools are playing in the discussion, especially when our schools are the majority of, of those in leadership are women from a from an at least a classroom perspective
1: well there's a couple things so one thing that our project focused on in addition to encouraging people to understand the history of Jane Crow and how it operates today is also that, there's a, there's a significant demographic mismatch between who's in front of the classroom and who's in the seats. And women like me are the predominant demographic group among teachers. White women are a substantial majority of teachers. And as we know, who's in public school has diversified. White students are no longer the majority in public schools. It's a coalition of students of color who are like the slight... Preponderance of who is in the room. And for that, that means that teachers need to think in terms of like, not just cultural competence and cross-cultural understanding, but there's a concept that I learned about in the process of doing this project that made a lot of sense to me, and it's cultural humility. It's that it's not my way or the highway. It's understanding where my students come from and incorporating their history and their stuff into the curriculum, and for me to sometimes sit back and understand more about who they are and how that affects the school experience. We had a piece in this package from a teacher who, a former teacher, now a freelance writer in New York City, who's part of, who formerly taught at the Young Women's Leadership School in East Harlem. And that's a school where they've been working on this for a long time. They're an all girls public school, predominantly. Uh, black and Latina girls, significant Muslim population. And there was a uh, there was an anecdote in the article about a young Muslim girl, like a middle schooler who was on a field trip during Ramadan. And she was really kind of, you know, they were walking, there was an intense trip. She needed a rest and her teacher asked her if she would have some water. And she did it in kind of a coercive way, not realizing, you know, that in Ramadan, you don't eat or drink all during the day, as long as the sun is up, you're fasting. And so it's just those cultural understandings when actually she probably just needed like a modification on the field trip to be able to participate. And the teacher imposed her own framework. And, you know, it's a young girl talking to her teacher. There's a parallel differential. She drank some water and she felt like she didn't follow the rules in her family's religion and was like feeling guilty all day. Like there's gotta be better negotiation among those things.
0: What's the next step in the project? If you, you know, one of the challenges I think um, and I've experienced is that it's hard to, we can have different opinions, the three of us, just for argument's sake. And if we're all coming from a rational position, we can still debate and learn something about each other, sort of our perspective and sort of maybe what a next step is. But a lot of what people are seeing from some of these extreme groups is this irrational approach where you actually feed into it if you get if you engage in what some might deem as an argument let alone maybe <laughs> a uh, a cordial debate so what is the next step i mean i would imagine the first step is sort of an awareness let's talk about jane crow let's understand how that sort of sits in our our culture currently where it's come from the origins of that and maybe start to expand our understanding of the horizon before us what's that next step so that we have a better understanding of sort of where we are in this timeline
1: I would say the next step is to have, not just educate yourself, but to have that conversation in groups. And that's why the project also includes discussion questions. We are reaching out to the schools of education. We've had education professors express interest in talking about the project and using the materials in their classes. We're actually talking with uh, Ed Trust Louisiana. That one of the things that our project highlights is the importance of diversifying the teacher and educator workforce we are i literally just sent an email to set up a meeting with uh EdTrust Louisiana where there's a campaign on around creating pathways for more diverse teachers and this could be information to help understand why that's important.
0: Rebecca, let's talk about I'll ask uh both of you this question but let's let's start with you. I think it's you know, as humans, when we go into projects, we have our own biases, right? and and or blind spots potentially that are revealed. What did this do for you personally going through this project? when you think about the reporting that you've done, maybe those times where you walked in with an opinion and it was changed, like how have you sort of emerged from this project different and more humble about your own experience and or complicit or implicit participation in some of these challenging topics?
2: I try to approach all education reporting under the assumption that the people involved are operating in good faith because they care about their children and they care about schools. And I think it's very important to do so particularly with this beat. I I am um, I think that parents Uh, Oftentimes what they do because they love their children and they want to make sure that their children is set up to succeed and I don't think that there is anything inherently wrong with that though sometimes it can distort our way of thinking. I believe that teachers get into the profession by and large for good reason. And I believe that most people who are activists in this space, who are advocates in this space, are doing so because they care about children and they love children. And I think that that is an important viewpoint to go into when approaching education stories, because I don't think it helps to necessarily view everyone involved or other people's motivations with malintent. Um, but I just think that we're all coming at these things from different places and different experiences. And I think what it is the most important thing to keep in mind is that it is not helpful for anyone's children to operate from a place of fear. So that's when these conversations get distorted. When we go in potentially with good intentions, but we become fearful of something happening to... The thing that is most precious to us, which is our children. And it's very easy to operate based on our id or our most base instincts when it comes to the to the our most precious uh commodities in life. Um, so in terms of how I walked away from this project feeling, I, I think I walked away with a sense that 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 this issue, this issue around civil rights in schools, primarily after COVID, that so many of us have been operating from a place of intense fear for the past few years that it has tremendously trickled down to schools and it's really hard to stop that train once it's already already running and that we have to be really deliberate in doing so
0: Maureen what about you I mean were there were there moments or was there a moment where you realized, Sometimes we realize we are a part of the problem, even in the smallest sense, um, just in the way in which we've been living our lives or what the assumptions that we've had. Tell me a little bit about what you've learned of just about yourself and or if you've gotten to your sort of even more passionate about it because of what has been uncovered.
1: Well, let me just talk a little bit personally. I mean, I've been on this journey for about 30 years now. I was really fortunate to be a student of the uh, well-known academic bell hooks feminist black feminist writer um and so my sort of awakening to this occurred in like the late 1980s so like that was the beginning and like a lot of my own personal journey started then and like much of what I've done career-wise is influenced. So the thing that the thing that this project brought home to me is if you've been doing this work as a white person for a long time, it's easy to get kind of arrogant and kind of know it all because a lot of stuff is still on 101 and so I, you know I can be like where's the 102? And the process of doing this project reminded me that I still have so much to learn. Working with some of the writers in this project um who were really deep in the school stuff and making sure that like, I wasn't imposing my editorial viewpoint on what they were seeing from the ground. Um, And then also like, as I say, I was not familiar with the term cultural humility until I started this project. And then I was like, oh, that's such a great way to talk about it because in the education space, we hear a lot about culturally responsive teaching and cultural competence. But I think especially as white people who often walk through the society we live in, kind of unaware of how much privilege we have, stopping to take stock of that and to note where, hey, it's just easy for me to do these things, but somebody who doesn't look like me or has, you know, lacks other kinds of privileges that I have, whether it's money or education or location that they live, it's much harder to do the same thing or to walk the same path because There's just obstacles there that for us are completely unseen. So it definitely reminded me that I have a lot more to learn and that I'm going to keep learning as long as I'm doing this kind of work.
0: Maureen, what about the industry itself? Can we, the pundits would say that the education industry doesn't have the internal fortitude to be able to handle something of this magnitude to make systemic change that is positive and equitable for all. Where do you stand on the industry and its ability to, Break these conversations down, understand how this impacts everything from sort of the daily governance of a district to the communication to parents and the way in which we incorporate all kinds. I mean, I've got <laughs> there's so many things that just the way in which we as parents support schools and then interact with students. And it is so much more. This is not linear. This is not static. It's not one dimensional. Right. It's a living, breathing organism. Um in Essence, and I'm wondering where or what you've learned through this process about the industry's ability to sort of take the baton and make substantial and substantive changes for the better.
1: Honestly, I'm very, I have a strange comp- combination of skepticism and optimism, and some of that is because I'm a solutions oriented reporter, right? <laughs> um, I've been watching a giant urban school district grapple with these issues again for about 25, 30 years, Chicago public schools. Have we made as much progress as I wish we had? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I bang my head against this every day. Most of the people in my neighborhood are Spanish speakers. It's still really hard to just get the most basic information out of the district in a language that's spoken by now, the majority of the students and families who, a part of that district. I mean, it's it just makes you want to do this. And then at the same time, there's a lot of innovation around the edges. There's really remarkable stuff going on whether it's in whether it's innovative principals or charter networks or districts that have, you know, more autonomy for schools and networks within themselves, there are things happening. It's just a question of how do we build sustainable systems To move that forward. And it's extra hard in a time of polarization. If I can just make one more point, last week, I happened to interview a really great prof at University of California, Riverside. His name is Joe Kahn. And he and some colleagues there had just put out a report in November about how politicization is affecting schools. And the headline for me is the very schools that need this kind of discussion and got dialogue the most. The schools in purple areas where it's highest conflict and most charged, that's where it's getting shut down. That's, to me, the most worrisome thing that is happening right now.
0: Rebecca, you're shaking your head in, in in agreement. Talk about that that clash. and And I guess that, I don't know if it's a dire position to be in, but if these are the areas that need it most and it's getting shut down, that to me speaks to the, incredible value and necessity for people to understand Jane Crow then and now the project.
2: No, I was just nodding my head because it feels like even outside of education, when it comes to shared institutions that we all rely on, that there has been such a a crippling of the strength of these institutions. And it's so hard to imagine a holistic or transformational paths forward when um, our our communities are being torn apart at this level. So I was shaking my head in sad recognition.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I shake with you <laughs> in that. Um, I want to make sure people can find um, Jane Crow then and now. Where should they go, Rebecca?
2: Ed Post.
1: <laughs> yep, ed Post, ed, edpost.com backslash Jane Crow. You'll find it there.
0: Well, look, uh, applause sent your way through the uh, the digital playground of Zoom here, um, and encouragement for obviously, I would imagine, and I hope that this is going to continue to grow as a project. That it is not that this is not an endpoint, but a starting point for discussion, for advanced knowledge acquisition for people at all levels of education. Um, you both are doing incredible work, um, and and it's just been a pleasure to spend some time with you. We want to thank Rebecca Klein and Maureen Keller. I'm your host. Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.